Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with Everyday Artist. As always, I ask you to please click the subscribe button wherever you listen to this podcast because it's free. I love hearing feedback about any and all episodes, so I encourage you to leave comments on Facebook or Instagram, and better yet, please write a review on iTunes on the Everyday Artist page. The guest for this episode is the amicable and whimsical visionary, Bill Carmen. You can see images of Bill's work on my website, brentwatkinson.com, as well as a link to his blog and his website. Bill was born in Korea and grew up in the Bay Area of California here in the United States. He is a degreed person, achieving two degrees in fact. One is a BFA in Visual Communications and Illustration, and another is an MFA in Painting. It's been a few days since our interview, and Bill may have accumulated another degree by now, so I'll check on that. He has worn many hats in the creative and image-making world, and has been things such as a designer, an art director, a concept artist, and technical illustrator, and he continues to freelance and teach at the University of Boise in Boise, Idaho, which happens to be the state capital in Idaho as well. He has exhibited in the Museum of American Illustration and in galleries across the country. Bill's quirky and jewel-like idiosyncratic work has been on the covers of many illustration industry annuals, including three in particular you may have heard of, including the Society of Illustrators, American Illustration, and Spectrum. His client list is quite protracted, so please take a gander at his blog and website and enjoy many images that will entertain that special little place in your mind that perhaps you don't visit often enough. I've told Bill many times in the past that I love his big, beautiful brain. And I'm sure that I have substituted the word beautiful in that sentence with the synonyms of wacky or odd or perhaps irregular, because it's that brain of his, that big, beautiful brain that produces the work, although his technique and execution is exquisite and flawless. Whatever word I've used, I'm simply trying to describe my admiration for his imagination and his creativity. And you can be quite sure that I am jealous of his ability. My imagination is nothing like his, and I am an enthusiast about Bill and his good work. In this interview, I struggle to structure questions to gently part the fabric of Bill's life and early career to gain insight into where his ideas and these meaningful interpretations come from. That is the mystery to me. And once you see the work, you will remember it. And his personal point of view demonstrates that he doesn't necessarily need to sign his work with a name because the work itself is a signature. It is a signature indeed, and also perhaps a tiny peephole into the mind of my friend, Bill Carmen. Let's get into it. 
Now, Bill, I've followed you on social media for a long time. And of course, I've met you at the Illustration Academy in Kansas City many times. And most often, I will comment something on your social media about, oh yeah, Bill, that big, beautiful, interesting brain of yours. Because you come up with the most incredible images that I, my imagination is just not wired that way. So I have a two-part question. The first part is, where do you think that interesting imagination comes from? Did you draw weird things when you were a child? Or how do you dream up these concepts? Well, that's a good question. Um, yes, I drew a lot of weird stuff as a youngster. <laughs> so you were a weird uh, kid. That's what you're saying. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you can track back most artists, you know, work to when they were young and most, you know, people when they were kids, you know, we all drew, right? I mean, um, we were creative, whether we were ma- you know, making stuff in the mud or drawing, you know, or coloring or whatever we were doing. But we sort of lose that thing. But I, you know, I was probably more so than most of my friends, even though I was very active outdoors and everything, but, you know, going in, I always was drawing and I, I copying comic books. And I had a friend that um, we made up scenarios together and plays and we, we would record them. And so we, you know, I was always trying to do something creative, not knowing exactly what it was. But when it really started to get weird for me, I think is, you know, um, with uh, when I started to get into album art and into music. And you're um, talking about the big 12 inch square albums. I'm talking about, you know, yeah, real <laughs> albums. We are showing um, our age. Yeah, I guess we are. But, you know, they seem to make a comeback now and then, and people still collect them. But in the first time that I really specifically focused in on a an album cover and album artwork was for uh almond brothers eat a peach um, oh yes i remember it and, and you know the cover image was really great uh, you know, big peach in the back of a truck but when you opened up the album there's a spread of artwork and it was just this meandering surreal sort of landscape you know with mushrooms and stuff and and my friend and i um we looked at that forever. We copied things out of there. We were in a band together eventually, um, played some Almond Brothers tunes. And so, but that was one of the things that, that really is a sort of this pivotal moment. And then I started discovering artists like uh, Patrick Woodruff, Roger Dean, people who were doing these trippy things, along with this other stuff I was looking at, the comic book thing and, uh, you know, pulp novel covers and things like that. So it was all kind of mixing around in there. But what always seemed to come out for me was the weirdest of all that stuff. I never could seem to settle into, well, just drawing people and <laughs> drawing normal people. You mean? Yeah. Well, yeah. Just you know, drawing, do, doing every everyday things and stuff like that. I just it always sort of gravitated toward, you know, strange people and animals. You know, sitting on mushrooms and smoking strange things and. Um, so I, I'm sure that's where the seed of it really, you know, started where that whole thing. Uh, and, I, and I've got to tell you, you know, over the years, as I get, you know, you know, working on art, I would try to corral myself a little bit. And I had 
times of dis- discipline where I would really focus on, you know, learning to draw and um, skills and so forth. And I had a, a, you know, an illustration career before I started to do all this really, you know, sort of strange, bizarre stuff. Um, but that stuff always is pulling at me. My brain shifts over to this place and, you know, it's not like I have to make it go there. Uh, <laughs> uh, I kind of thought yeah. that in the back of my mind. So thanks for sharing that. So, yeah, I'll, you know, all that, all that time, you know, spending learning to draw, learning to think, learning, you know, in school and all those kinds of things, of course, helped me corral those really strange ideas into something that was at least somewhat readable. And, you know, well, if you had to get the skills so that you could manifest your ideas and your thoughts in something that, that we could see that was attractive also. Absolutely. Um, that was, and for me, that, 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 that skill building, um, it took two different forms, the form of, yes, I had a very sort of, uh, you know, an illustration career where I worked for companies, where I worked in companies, um, where I did concept work for, you know, places um, like LucasArts and for other places. But when I came home at night, that's when, you know, that other side would manifest itself. So the skills that I built, you know, you know building a career and learning that, you know, the principles of design and drawing and so forth, then fed that beast that was always there and that now is sort of taking over. My second part of the question is, what is the most fun part of your creative process? Is it the ideation? Is it the rendering of the final product? Is it sketching out ideas? You tell me. Well, there's not a, there's not one answer for that. Every project seems to be a little different for me. Sometimes that idea stage is just the best part um, where I can, you know, you know, sketch out ideas, write things down, dive in in that way. But sometimes it absolutely is the worst part for me. <laughs> and so the, the process of just starting a piece and working on it, that becomes the most interesting and the most fun for me where I'm actually building something from almost nothing on a piece you know every every part of a painting for me on some pieces i enjoy you know the beginning stage some pieces i enjoy the middle stage some you know pieces the end finishing up is always fun for me i think probably that's if, if there's one place where i can say it's most consistently enjoyable it's putting in those final little things little highlights little creases little things here and there or finding a spot where uh oh that needs some more rivets i love that checks and balances stage where i have to you know find those things that will kind of tie everything together so my process unless i'm working on you know a specific project for something is really all over the place and it's kind of embarrassing to have to admit you know that sometimes i just you know, in and out, back and forth, starting, painting over, you know, and and, uh, I've had a lot of students ask me about this because so many of my pieces look so controlled, you know, and so sort of together. And I'll tell them, well, 
I didn't even have an idea for this piece when I started it. And I probably shouldn't tell them that because that's not what you tell students, right? <laughs> well, you have uh, experience yes, uh, exactly. way beyond what they have. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like Mark English. That's, he just sits down and does a painting. And a lot of times he will prepare. A lot of times he will not. Well, he's got 50 years on a lot of people. So we, he's allowed to do that. Yeah. And that, that's kind of what it is, you know, and, and it's, sometimes it's hard to, to separate that out for people that you're teaching, you know, saying, look, I've been at this for longer than you're, you've been alive. So, you know, you're going to have to give yourself time. If you want to do this kind of work, you have to pay your dues. You have to get to that point. And that means, you know, learning to come up with ideas, doing thumbnails, you know, writing lists, you know, developing a, you know, a process for yourself that's consistent, that works before you can start breaking away from that and, and, you know, finding spontaneous process that may work for you in some way. You mentioned previously that you had a career in illustration, a quite illustrious one, I may add. And you said you did this kind of work and that kind of work, and then you would come home at night and you would turn into Bill Carmen. So right. at what point did you make the switch and say, you know, this is my work and I'm going to do this now? I, I don't think I could quote you a delineation that, you know, a time when I said this was, this was it. In fact, it's it, the stages when, you know, when I got out of school, I wasn't ready to, to make a career, you know, out of illustration. I worked as a graphic designer. I worked as an art director. Um, and then I would go home again and I would build skills at night. And those are the, uh, I call my late night sessions, you know, when the kids were in bed and I would sit up at my table and work and, and, and build my skills. Then that sort of, you know, slowly sh shifted over to me being an illustrator. And then as I, you know, work doing that, it can slowly shift it over to people actually buying those strange things I did, you know, at night and on my own time. So I'm not sure there's a, you know, a clear delineation, but it was this process of one thing, you know, and then the underground thing, and then another thing, then another underground thing until I've come here. And then of course the teaching thing has to fit in there also. Um, you know, the teaching thing allowed me, at some point to say, oh, wow, I can do a lot more of these, you know, this stuff that I, it's always in my head, that's always wanting to come out because I have, you know, a paycheck coming in and I can pay the bills. What do you think was your true motivation for doing that work late at night? Because you go work all day, you have fun with your kids and you enjoy their time. And then now it's your time. You could have just had some whiskey or beer or watched TV, but you didn't do that. What do you think your true motivation was in the back of your mind? Well, the true motivation was it, it, this stuff wouldn't stay in my head. And so it, it kept leaking out of places, you know, and, and it needed some sort of an outlet. And um, I can tell you, I would get grumpy when I didn't let, you know, let that stuff out of my head. My family, I think, probably recognized that. Um, 
And that stuff was in there and, and, and it needed to come out. And so that's, that's all it was that I, if I didn't do it, I couldn't sleep, uh, couldn't focus on other things. So it was like a pressure valve that had to be, you know, released at night. I love that scenario because I can just see you walking in the door and you have this look of consternation on your face and you tell your significant other, uh, honey, there's a picture of a, a little fat bunny riding a dog that I have to do right now. It's got to come out. Well, it sure helps to have a very supportive, you know, significant other. And I've had that. I've been lucky. I think a lot of us, uh, share that. And a lot of us have been very lucky. And, uh, uh, I think we chose wisely or were chosen wisely. One of the two. It just came together for some reason. That's for sure. That brings up a whole other topic, but how good are you? And this is a completely different topic, but my question now becomes how good are you at being in the moment, whether you're teaching or obviously working on your artwork, you're in the moment, but are you one of these people that's always looking too far ahead or are you pretty good about being present? I feel like I'm pretty good about being present. Um, actually, I, I'm pretty bad at looking ahead. Um, unless it's just, you know, briefly ahead. So let me let me give you an example of what I mean. If it's something that I'm very, for example, when I'm in the classroom, I'm in the moment. And it's an enjoyable moment for me. I love being in there. And so all of me is there. When I'm in a meeting, I am thinking ahead to when I go home and go upstairs to my studio and start working. I'm very bad at looking far ahead. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's where I'm, you know, um, would you I'm call yourself lost. a worrier? No, I, I don't think I'm much of a worrier. Uh, I mean, I have, I have my moments. I'm not one that, you know, that, that really, I'm pretty even keeled that way. I think. Do you think being an educator has helped you become a better artist in some way? I do. Um, How so? Aside from the, fa the fact that it's given me time to do what I do, students give me energy. It, it just, just, you know, being with them, talking to them, and then talking about things that I, and I'm lucky that I get to teach what I love. That way, that, that sort of thing, it just, it energizes me and it's been filling my tanks for years. And occasionally, you know, I'll need another kind of, you know, refill that, you know, teaching starts to get, get to me a little bit. And then I'll have a sabbatical or something great will happen or I'll refocus. Yeah, no, I think uh, education has been very good to me in, in that way as far as, uh, especially because I, again, I get to teach what I love, so. Oh, I, I love teaching. I love hanging out with younger people. They teach me so much and I'll, I'll be walking along and I'll say, wow, what is this thing you're working on? What is this device? Oh, it's a touchscreen laptop that folds you know, <laughs> 25 different ways. I'm like, I didn't even know that existed until not too long ago. So they're always telling me about interesting video games and software and hardware and nobody can know everything, of course, 
but it is really great to hang out with a lot of different people that are kind of more on that cusp of new stuff. And uh, you're right, uh, a lot of energy can come from the right studio and the right group of people. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I would be completely out of the contemporary pop culture loop if it weren't for my students and my daughters. They're pretty good at that, too. Speaking of students, since we're kind of in that mode right now, what do you think you could tell some young listeners that are students currently in whatever level, high school, college, or whatever, what do you think that a lot of them miss out on? And another way to look at that is what's the biggest mistake or mistakes that students do or, or have? I, I would say that well, there's probably a couple of things. Um, number one is I find that students don't look at enough good stuff. So, you know, we're bombarded with images daily and the internet is, is great in some ways, but really dangerous in a lot of other ways. So they're bombarded with imagery and, and looking at things saying, oh, this is so cool. And, and this, this image and that image or this, whatever it is. And, you know, without using a lot of judgment. Um, so hopefully that's what education is partially about, you know, is that, 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 that teaching of, and taste is a bad word, but what works, what doesn't work. So um, what, I, what I'm saying is that students don't look at enough good work. So going back to the basics, so I introduce a lot of things, you know, like annuals and things, because generally that is vetted in some way. And then, then you know, try to, steer them towards sites and places that are, you know, uh, have a little more quality work. Another thing is, is that, you know, there's going to have to be a time when you as a student or as a learner decide, okay, this is what I want to do and actually decide to put in the time, not just, you know, just a few sketches here or there or whatever, but, you know, decide I, I want to be this, not just I want to do this, but I want to be this. And um, that switch has to be turned on at some point. Most, most students, I don't think, have that in school. It usually comes after they graduate, but I've had a few that in school that, that switch actually turns over and they work and they work and they work and they work productively. So um, those are the things that I watch for. And I find usually are the things that the students need most, uh, you know, as far as or, or lacking most. The knowledge that this is not this is not something that we do. This is something that we are for most of us to find good work to look at. Well, I liked what you said about looking in annuals because, to use your terms, it is vetted in some way, which means it's gone through several peers. It's gone through the voting process of does this get in or not, and even before the annuals. You could go to that mystical place called a library, and usually if work was good enough, it would be published. Now right. anything book, yeah. can be mm -hmm. published. I mean, you Absolutely. get a website. <laughs> there, there yeah. is very little vetting process anymore, and George Pratt was talking with me not long ago, and we were talking about the magical time that we would have in the library, not to sound like old fuddy-duddies, but the cool part is you'd go in and you'd 
pull out a book by Degas. Wow, these are fun. These are really great. Man, I love these drawings. Wait a minute. What's on the shelf right below that? Whoa, I've never heard of this lady before. Who is this? Wow, Joan Brown. Are you kidding me? It, it's, it's two different things. It's apples and oranges. But on the internet, a lot of times you can't find something unless you're looking for something. And there's other ways to do that. What was that word again? Library? <laughs> it's we'll a mystical, magical place. Oh, wow. I spent a lot of hours, you know, sitting on the floor. I had a couple of places on the floor where I'd sit on the li- in the library and, and, you know, just for hours. So, yes. Well, when we I... Have- yeah, uh, when I was in school, I loved being at the library because it had lots and lots of books about painting, very few books about illustration. I didn't even know what illustration was. And they also had, and this goes back to your uh, album art, they had records that you could play for free and put the headphones on and listen Absolutely. to things you've never heard of. Absolutely, yeah. Which is kind of like uh, Spotify or Pandora would be now. <laughs> which is similar uh, because you can type in a, uh, a genre of music or a type of music and they will play similar things. So I, I like that idea too. That's a good part of tech. Well, here's the, the, the you know, here's the thing, you know, now it's hard to, to, to measure a person's dedication by, you know, things like that, because you can find things so easy now, you know, find music, you know, and artwork and this and that. But back then we had to work so hard to uncover things and you're right. Books there, you know, books, the books are published generally were good quality because there were so few published. And so, um, but then you had to chase those down and find that. And there were never books on illustration. There were the annuals that I remember, but it was, you know, even when I was in, uh, you know, college is very difficult to find any kind of writing about illustration, especially. So I guess the moral of our little story here is the fact that students need to look at a lot of things and start trying to figure out what's really good and what to pay attention to and what to ignore. And that can be a, a difficult, daunting task. Absolutely. And I think that's what, you know, again, we talk about, you know, being self-taught versus, you know, education. And, and there's always that debate going on because, you know, uh, higher education these days is so expensive at most places. And so it's undoable for, for a lot of people. But, you know, the difference is that this is sort of a short, you know, education is sort of a shortcut to finding those, you know, the quality. And I think that, um, and I don't know why I'm steering it toward this right now, but some of these new models of education, um, like the Illustration Academy, like uh, Illustration Masterclass, and some of these places, they're shorter experiences, so you don't spend as much money, but they're able to direct students' tastes. They're able to you know, show quality and help them learn to vet and not have to spend you know, $40,000 a year on an education. Well, they're very pointed they're a very pointy spear that says you know here it's condensed it's it's a Mm -hmm. really good idea to say okay if you want to do this here's these people that do this and we're going to show you this and how it works so it's not very well rounded you don't get to read chinese literature when you go to these places you have to do that on your own 
I, I agree with you. The education model is changing now, and I think it's drastically changing, and hopefully for the better, or at least in a good direction. Well, you know, I, I you know, I'm all for the, you know, the educated person. That's why I still teach at a university. And I think that, uh, you know, everybody is self-educated. I don't care if they went to school or not, but there was all, there's always that moment when you have to decide that you want to be an educated person, but, you know, to have some of those tools of people who've done it and, you know, know it and still do it as mentors. And, you know, I think that's kind of invaluable. It sure, sure can shorten that experience. I know that. At the uh, Kansas city art Institute, where I've been teaching off and on for 30 years, mainly more off than on, but I'm back there now and really enjoying it and um, hopefully helping some people. As I like to say, I try not to hinder. They... <laughs> it's, that's, it's easy to do, you know. It's, <laughs> hindering is not, it's, it's not too difficult, you know. Hey, let's take Brent's class. He won't hurt you. Okay. <laughs> but a lot of times I hear them um, not really complaining, but they are, aren't speaking highly sometime of some of their electives, some of the literature classes and art history. And I'm like, are you crazy? That stuff is gold. Get in there, read that literature, find out something else about the world. And art history is, is a wonderful, fascinating thing. And fortunately for me, I had an absolutely tremendous art history teacher that just pulled world events and art history all together with economics and the science that was going on at the time. It, the guy was brilliant. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I really think that, that, um, most students see core education or general education in the wrong light. They, they see it as, well, you know, if I could take algebra, I'm never going to use algebra and, 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 you know, in, in real life and, and, for the most part, that's absolutely true. I don't use algebra, but it's not about learning algebra or learning, you know, chemistry or learning literature as, as much as, as it is about learning different systems of learning. And for an artist, that is critical, that you learn different ways of learning um, and it will help you in problem solving over and over again if you can approach, you know, problems from different points of view and from different directions. So I try to give that to my students and say, you know, if they're complaining, oh, I have this math class or I have this, look, buy into it. Buy into it for now. Learn that way of learning and see if it doesn't help you, you know, in your artwork. So back to a question a little bit ago, and we have been speaking in roundabout terms, I guess, but how does being an educator inform your artwork? How, why did your artwork maybe take a little step up during the fact that you were teaching and getting better at teaching? Quite honestly, I would say the biggest part of it was the fact that I had time to focus on the kind of artwork that I just really wanted to do. Teaching gave me time for that. Like I said, the, the, the energy thing, all of that is there, but uh, if I'm honest, that's, that was, that was the real, it provided me with a lifestyle. 
that was once it was, um, you know, fulfilling as far as being educational for me, but also it just, you know, it gave me that time. And and I've got to tell you also, you know, you know, as I taught for years and years and years, being able to speak to people outside of the, you know, uh, education is really important. I, I, I mean, I, I never get nervous when I stand in front of people anymore, whether it's at an awards thing or at some sort of other kind of meeting. You know, I've learned to talk to people. And so that's another big part of, I think, being an artist and an illustrator is being able to communicate well, both, you know, visually and, and verbally, as well as, you know, the written form. So I think that has been a big part of it for me. Bill, I'm under the impression from a lot of the, the work that I've seen and watched you do demonstrations, a lot of the scale of your work is rather intimate. It's rather small. Is that true or am I on the wrong track? That is absolutely true. Uh, I've worked for the most part pretty small. Um, the largest piece I've done in the last probably 10, 15 years is maybe to 24 by 36 inches and um and i'll do i'll do um pieces you know 16 by i'm working on a commission right now 16 by 20 inches in that range but that's generally as large as i go these days unless it's a special commission and somebody wants something a little bit a little bit bigger but i like small um i there's a certain intimacy and my involvement i don't know with it you know this this sort of precious little object that I work on. Um, I, I, I like that scale. And I, and I also respond to that too, when I go to museums, um, that, that you know, small pieces appeal to me in a way that the larger ones don't. And, and I think it, again, it does have a lot to do with that intimacy and, the, and technically the way that I paint, of course, too. So. Well, a lot of your work is very jewel like to me. Um, and I, I don't want this to be an insult. I want this to be a compliment. I just want to make a necklace out of a lot of those little things that I see. They're, they're just beautiful in those little bitty teeny highlights and that, that rich mid-tone color. They're just, they're just yummy. You know, I just, um, so I think the scale does play into all of those things. And I can't imagine your work perhaps being on the side of a building or, you know, a wall, because it just seems it's a little bit different than that. Not that it wouldn't be beautiful, but I like that intimacy that you're talking about. Well, yeah, I just, um, you know, I, I've asked myself over the years, you know, is it just a convenience thing? So you don't have to deal with really big pieces and ship them and all that kind of a thing. And maybe that's part of it in the back of my mind, but the joy of me starting a really small piece, you know, on, on copper or, or wood or, or masonite or whatever I'm, I'm working on is so much different than when, if I'm, you know, working on a larger piece, it, it, there's more of a, I don't want to say intimidation, but this, oh, this is going to be a lot of effort. Cause I put the same kind of effort into a larger piece that I do, you know, with smaller pieces. So, Maybe I see it as, oh, no, I'm going to have to do this many small pieces to make this one larger piece work. And that's all in the back of my mind, I guess. But um, I, I don't know when I, you know, I, I go to, my, you know, when I go to the Met, the first piece I always go and see, first and last, 
is uh, something by you know Van Eyck, and it's that ascent you know ascension from hell thing, and it and um, and it's just beautiful, and it's small, and it's gorgeous, and it's detailed, and you know when I go to the National Gallery in in uh, at the Smithsonian, uh, Saint George slaying the dra- dragon by Van der Weyden. It's this small little, about four by four inches, and it's just gorgeous. And it, oh, yeah, and the jewel-like quality. There's no, there's no insult in that. All. In fact, one of my, uh, one of my clients commissioned a piece that I did on copper. It was about, I think it was about two by two or three by three inches, that they had actually made into a necklace or a pendant, you know, as part of a necklace. So, hey, see, I'm onto something. You are onto something. <laughs> So when you begin working on a new piece, let's say you've got something in your head and you go up to your studio late at night when, when you're all alone and you get to listen to whatever you want to listen to and, and you're all set up and ready to go, do you get into that, that wonderful numb zone to work in every time you do a piece or once in a while, seldom? How often does that magic happen? Now, I, I I don't think it lasts throughout a, a piece. I think it for me it goes and stops and starts because my you know there's life still going on around me all the time. So I get into that and we call it the zone or whatever. But I definitely get there. That's when I really make the most you know progress and the best kind of progress. But for me, it's one of those things where um, I can put myself there. And this is, this is funny. That is a, that's a I, huge thing. That was going to be my next question. So I was going to say, well, have you ever tried to train yourself to get there quicker? But you're saying you can. So tell us. Oh, no, I, I think that's critical. And I, and I can't imagine that most, you know, artists that I know, you know, don't do that, that, you know, especially if, if you have a business that you're, you know, that you're running and you have to put pieces out, you have to get at least partially into that zone or, you know, into a place where you can really think and feel and make things happen. Um, otherwise, you know, if you're waiting for some sort of inspiration to hit, um, how can you ever get anything done? And, and this is one of the things that I, you know, tell my students that, you know, um, we've probably all been in some sort of, you know, athletes get into the zone, right? And they, and they we talk about that. They're in this place where, you know, focus is super, you know, super focus and all this other stuff falls away. And um, it probably doesn't happen with artwork for a lot of you right now as students because you're learning things and you're struggling so hard to, to think to make things happen that you can't get to that place because that place has to be gotten to by, you know, um, a natural kind of focus, that, you know, and I think it, you know, it takes time. But for, for me, I, I feel like I can get there and then come out of it sort of at will now. Um, I have to. My life is so disruptive in that way that I've had to develop that. I think that is extremely rare and enviable. And I think all of us artists out here that struggle with that are really trying to figure out um, how that magic happens with you. So do you do you just have a place that is conducive to that? Could you do it at my house? Could you do it you know, in a car going 60 miles an hour down the road. What do you think is part of the formula for getting in that zone when you want? Um, well, I'll tell you how for me it works is uh, if, if you try super hard at 
super focusing, it becomes too difficult. It's, it's, it's this sort of chore. If I have a distraction going on that doesn't take me too far. So for example, if I keep a TV on in my studio and I have something going on the TV that I don't really care about. So I, maybe a movie I've seen you know, many times or a show that I've seen over and over again, or something like a soccer match where I don't have to keep paying attention all the time to, to what's going on. I partially focus there and then it, it distracts me. So I can just get into this sort of visual zone where, and that works for me and um, it's worked for years. And I'm not sure if it's because of because I can't do it with music. I can't do it with music that I like. Music distracts me. It pulls me into a different kind of a zone. <laughs> I get way too, you know, way too into music, way too, you know, involved with it that I can't be involved with two different, very creative things. That's interesting. I went through a time when I needed to listen to music while I was working. And then it became, and I could listen to anything, just like you were talking about, just something, this, that noise, like whatever it was. And then it got to be where I had to have specific kinds of music. And then I got to where I didn't want to listen to anything. I would just Mm -hmm. have this silent studio and it was some, it'd probably be really creepy if somebody walked in and you know, you're hard at work and you're painting, 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 and all you hear is the sound of the knives and the the brushes on the canvas and nothing else. But you're saying, I, I really liked what you said about a movie you've seen before, so you know you're not going to miss anything, or a soccer match that you can look up and down and wherever, and uh, it's not critical that you're really paying attention. That's really good advice, I think. Yeah, but you know, the, the great thing about what we do is – how, how different everybody is. And, you know, our brains are so incredible and how, you know, how they fire and how they are, they're connected and everybody's is a little different. I think it's so interesting to me that, that, you know, uh, hearing how other artists handle the same sort of a situation. Can they have music on? Do they need silence? Um, what, you know, what kind of environment do they need? And, um, and I, you know, I find it so interesting that we can be so different but we still get to that same kind of place. We have to get to that same kind of you know place creatively where we can be productive. So, Do you think there's themes in your work besides being quirky and the anthropomorphic creatures that you create? Are, are there themes of morality or, uh, you know, graft or greed or <laughs> I'm just making <laughs> things up. So, or, no, or is it all about the no, characters? That's a good question. There are generally my work is never about nothing. Sometimes it'll start with you know as something something that I've you know I've, I've witnessed or I've you know uh, been thinking about and I'll and I'll start a piece about that. But oftentimes it'll you know as I'm working it comes to me. You know I've done a lot of work about that have underlying you know ideas about you know pop culture and about kind of the human race. And then I'll go directly to things like the the, the series I'm doing right now, which is. A book of the obviously extinct, just a strange animal thing of obviously extinct animals. And so, you know, I'll get hooked on something for a while. But for the most part, I think, you know, those those things evolve as I'm doing a piece, the, the ideas that come out of it. And people are amazing, too. When they look at my work, they see things that I don't see. 
And uh, it's so interesting when I, when I hear somebody talk about my work and they, they see something and they say, oh, this has got to be about this, you know? And of course, it's nothing to do with what I was thinking. But for me, I think that's a wonderful thing. It's a, it's a win. Yes. Anytime you get a response of anything, mm. good or bad, then that's a win, I think. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, a response engaging is, 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 I think, what any of us as an artist, you know, would like people to engage our work in some way. Have you ever done a series of similar subjects? In other words, and again, I'll make this up. Have you ever done a series of zebras, like you did 25 zebra paintings? Generally, my series don't aren't that long. Usually, my series comes in group of, groups of three. Sometimes it's a series that's based around a theme, maybe for group shows. You know, a lot of gallery shows are, you know, based around a theme. So I'll do a, a series of um, Alice in Wonderland paintings. So three of those. Uh, I've done a series of, you know, Maurice Sendak tribute paintings. I've done a series of, you know, comic themed paintings, you know, for uh, celebrating the comics. So my series generally don't go on much longer than that. I, I get distracted very easily. So I'll always get pulled somewhere else. Even with this thing that I'm thinking about actually you know, developing into a book, this, these extinct animals, I'll do a couple and then I'll have to do something else because I, I can't, you know, it's just like, oh, I love these, they're fun, but I want to do something else. I have too many other ideas that I just need to get out to keep distracting me. Ideas distract me and, and it's sometimes, you know, uh, a hindrance, but like, it's just the way my brain works. Well, I think you're a very curious person. And after three paintings in a series, then you probably start telling yourself, you know, I think I have that pretty much figured out. So time to move down. On. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I couldn't do 25 zebra paintings either, but uh, yeah, that was just a, a question to kind of get us in the right direction. It's so, an interesting notion though. 25 zebra paintings. You know, it's, uh, it's a maybe, lot of stripes. Maybe you could just do 25 zebras in one painting, get it over with. With no stripes. <laughs> right. So what would be your dream project? And maybe you're working on it now with your obviously extinct idea. Any other dream project that's in the back of your mind? Um, you know, I don't have one of those. I, I've thought about that, you know, um, and I'm not sure that I have. I, I, I love the idea of books still. And so I would love to do more books. In fact, I would love to do more children's books. I did, you know, I did one for Random House way back in 2002. And, and since then, you know, I've started and stopped and done it's, it's tremendously time consuming for me to do a children's book. So I've never really taken that any, you know, any further, something I would love to do. But as far as a dream project, I've never been able to pin something down that would be, that is the ultimate for me. There are things that I would like to try that I've never tried before. I'd like to work. I'd love to try working on a, you know, a, a project with a with a team. I'm, I, I work so isolated now that it'd be fun to work on some sort of a you know visual project that way. But I don't know that I have a dream project, Brent. I, I'm, and and I, and I, I thought about this, you know, and I think most people do. Again, if if I if I had to come up with an answer, it would be you know revolve around a book. I think some of these books that these. Um, 
I see these artists and illustrators illustrating for folio or you know some of these things. They're gorgeous. And that would come pretty close to being a dream project, I guess, for me. Yeah, I will uh, accept that as an answer. Yeah, <laughs> a book. You like you like books and you like, I uh, like series. Books. I'm a I'm terrible. I, I just have too many books and I'll probably keep getting them. Keep buying them, Bill. There's no problem with that. I love books. <laughs> you mentioned your children's book and mm-hmm. I love your palettes, but I wonder if your palettes for the children's book you did back in 2002 was a little bit different than what I think of as what you produce as, as a palette now. Yes. And I think it had to be, you know, I'm, I'm not sure unless I were doing a children's book in, in Europe or in Asia, um, the palettes that I use now are probably not going to go over real big. I mean, and so, and even the one, the, the book that I did had a lot of dark in it, but they were sort of dark, bright blues. So I think it worked out well, but no, you're right. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure you know, how that would work out, but I, I have other palettes in me. Um, where do, you, where do you think your current uh, tastes in tonality and palette comes from? It, it's just a wonderful mood. It's a very, I, I hate to say the word somber, but it's a very quiet mood. When I, when I look at your paintings, they're interesting, they're energetic, they excite me but they're calming at the same time. I just think it's just sort of a natural development over development over time. And I think it, you know, may yet change, of course, that can, you know, always happen. And um, I'll come up with the odd piece. That's just quite a bit different, you know, different as far as the you know palettes go. But um, I think it's sort of a natural development over, you know, looking at what I like and sort of absorbing all that. And, um, you know, the color choices I make. And, you know, I've never been a real lover of really colorful things and colorful palettes, colorful paintings. There are certainly some that I enjoy, but I've always been more drawn to um, limited palettes. So I think that just naturally kind of comes out in my work. Well, I think your palettes are very believable. They are, quote, realistic, yes, but they're very believable because we're not surrounded by really intense crazy color most of the color around us is very quiet and subdued and i think that's just a a page in your book and and i really like the effect again it's very calming very quiet Uh, a lot of your characters are very serene so i i like all of those aspects and i was just trying to compare that to a children's book which sometimes in my mind and this is my own shortcoming. A lot of children's books, I think, need to have some energy and some color and that sort of thing and, and a different mood, I guess. Not that one is right or wrong, but a different one. And you're saying that, yes, that's true, that it was a little bit different. Yeah, it was a little different. But I've got to tell you that, you know, a lot of the my the children's books that I have enjoyed most over the years seem to have that kind of somber palette, too. Um Books by Peter Sis, you know, and um, uh, Roberto Innocenti, I think is name. You know, there's some just some, and the, the subject matter also is very dark in some of those books. Well, you mentioned um, Maurice Sendak a little bit ago. Yes, 
Well, you know, because his his book uh, was always an influence on me. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure anybody that has any kind of visual, you know, uh, existence hasn't been affected in some way by, you know, uh, where the wild things are. It's just too large <laughs> a cultural statement to not have been affected by it in some way. So does your work ever get social or political at all, or is it just more about things that are in your mind or ideas? You talked about pop culture. I guess that's social. In a way, and and, and I and, and subtly, yes, there will be, you know, political statements in my work. It's, it's never very obvious. I have done some very obviously political things and posted them, but that's not what I normally do. That's not really, you know, who I am. That's not how I communicate generally, but I was doing it to poke, you know, at somebody and (laughs) (laughs) to to, to get somebody to argue with me um, just because I was feeling so angry about things. So, uh, but that's not generally what happened. My generally any kind of statement is very subtle in my work. So do you think there's, a strong component of social artwork out there right now. Social not, and political. Yeah, I not guess. not by you, but is it absolutely? Oh gosh, and that's one of the that's one of the things that I still enjoy about the internet and about being online is seeing the artwork of um, you know people like uh, Tim O'Brien and uh, Adele Rodriguez and you know illustrators who have a very strong political voice. C. Broadner, John Cuneo, and just I could go on and Those on. Those are big so, names. So, yeah, and I just love seeing that work all over the internet. And they have, you know, extremely eloquent and, and you know, beautiful voices as far as that, as far as, you know, political concerns and social concerns go. And I'm not sure I could ever get to a place like that. Well, I think their root lives are very political. They want yes. that they want to show that agenda, and I use that term cautiously because agenda sometimes comes across as a, a negative impact. But I think they really feel like what they are showing in their artwork, and I think that's good. I think that's what you should do if you feel that way. Absolutely. That's where I, you know this line between illustration and fine art, this, this sort of bogus line. Um, I think that, you know, uh, it really, if the passion is there, then the passion, you know, will show in your work. Yeah. And so, so them, them as illustrators, I think they have such a strong voice and such a, the platform is so, you know, great. I mean, you know, how many people have seen some of those images? And that's what I, like I said, when my new, when my feed comes up on, you know, on Facebook and I see all that, that, that imagery, it's, you know, part of the reason I stay on social media. So that's usually where I see the most artwork because I've been thinking the past couple of years, if I wasn't tied into a lot of artists and artistic people on social media, I just don't see a lot of art anymore. And maybe I'm going, (laughs) I'm looking in the wrong place or I'm not getting out enough or something. But what do you think about that? I think that's probably true for most everybody. I I think it's true for me too, other than, you know, the continuously still 
get the annuals. I'll, you know, get Spectrum. I'll get Society of Illustrators. I'll get American Illustration, Communication Arts. And, you know, so I'll still get all those and pour over those and read those and um, study those. But most of our visual information get absolutely online. That's just the way it's evolved, right? Is Yeah, I, I think it has. And I think photography, of course, uh, is very prevalent, way more than doing something as far as an illustration or uh, a handmade piece of work. Uh, yes, it's out there. A lot of it's digital. A lot of it's in the video realm. And that's all good. It's all fine. But every time there's a piece of clickbait or an ad on social media it's always just a cheesy piece of stock photography it seems like well that's and that's the whole downside of having so much information available is there just so so many things that we can get caught up caught up and you know so many bad webs out there that will you know suck you in and and you know i I'm, i'm sure at some point well, I'm not sure at some point, but I think, you know, at, at some point, education is going to have to tackle that problem, too, as far as, you know, what what do we look at? Where do we find things, you know, and, and without having to click and go down some deep rabbit hole of just really cheesy, bad stuff. But, you know, it's, it's right now that the Internet is just a big, unmanageable beast. Um, I'm not sure it'll ever change from that. Um, maybe we don't want to change from that because then putting controls on anything then automatically means somebody's in control, right? And so it's a, it's a tough question to tackle. I do like the fact that I still think of the internet as the wild, wild west. Yeah. And it's just this crazy place where who knows what can happen. I think early on in mid-90s, you could get on the internet and you would try to find a piece of information. Maybe it was there, maybe it wasn't. And then maybe around the middle 2000s, you knew it was there. Everything was there. Everything was on the internet. And Mm -hmm. now I think we're to the point where, yes, it's on there, but there's so many things that get in your way that it's it's still hard to find it. That's absolutely true. You know, there's, you know, search engines are so difficult for me to understand. <laughs> you know, Googling a word and getting all kinds of other words instead of the word that you want. And Oh, it's a so, moving target. They change it all the time. Yeah, so I don't know. And the whole SEO, which stands for search engine optimization, that has changed drastically over the years. And it's. I yeah. think it's changed for the better, but you have to know how to play both sides to find what you want and then to get whatever you're trying to put online to be found. Right. Get the right positioning. I know it. It's almost, it's almost as if you have to hire somebody these days to position yourself anymore, you know, on the, on the internet. So, well, that's part of it. The other part is the, the big people with the money, can buy their way in. And there's lots of ways of doing that. So again, it's a moving target. Anything good, you know, eventually money's going to come along and corrupt it. So yeah, that's true. Unfortunately, Bill, how do you think your artwork has changed 
over time? Do you, do you look back and say, oh, well, here was this segment of my artwork and here's another segment and now I'm in this new part or has it always been similar? Oh, no, I, I can, you know, definitely see, you know, the difference in the growth. And if I compare myself now to 10 years ago to, you know, 20, 30, 40, you can, I can, you know, see the changes and the growth. But, you know, I'm not sure that there are pivotal moments that I can point to where that, you know, that those changes have occurred. It's sort of always been this sort of slow evolving process. But yeah, and I have, you know, examples of older things from different times in my life. And it's fun to look at those every once in a while and um, see that I do believe I've actually gotten better and which is pretty encouraging, I guess, <laughs> for anybody. Well, I think you, you described what I will call this gentle evolution over time. But during that time, were you actively in your mind thinking, I need to turn this corner. I need to go this direction and I need to get away from X and go toward Y. I think most of those moments have been about um, not about evolving my artwork or you know, changing my, my artwork, but more about concerns about life. So those moments when I, I'll give you an example. When I, you know, uh, got out of school, I was working in at Ford Aerospace as a designer and, and technical illustrator. And I'd been working for them as, you know, an intern for, for several summers before that. They hired me full time. After a little very brief time there, another design firm came away, came along and, you know, whisked me away, hired me away. And it was a small firm and um, called Louis Seikau Design. He uh, sort of was a, became a mentor and I started to do illustration design for him. The, the company started to grow. And there was a moment where he talked to me about, you know, eventually, you know, being a partner in, in the thing. And, and, um, and as time went on, I just, I didn't want to be in advertising. It was going to be very lucrative. And in fact, you know, of course he retired rich and everything and all this stuff, all the regrets of my life. But I, I always sort of steered toward this creative thing that I wanted to do. I didn't even know what it was at the time. Um, I, and later on, I had the I worked at LucasArts as an illustrator, with, working with a bunch of you know architects to, to uh, help design theme parks. And you know you don't study for that. At least maybe you do now. But back then there was no theme park 101 classes or any kind of program. But I was able to do this and then, you know, work for them. I worked right next to ILM and, and the art department and got to do some test storyboards for the art department there and had the opportunity to maybe go on and do more and work more for that company, for LucasArts. But I steered away from that, too, because there was always this vision out there of something and I didn't know what it was. But these two very lucrative opportunities I steered away from because life steered me. And it wasn't, yes, in one way it was about the art, that there was art I wanted to do. I didn't know what it was, but something told me that maybe it was, I was just afraid of making money. I think I've always had a fear of that maybe. But, well, I but think I, you know, maybe I you just felt like it was too closed-ended. 
maybe you wanted something more interesting or scary or gee, I wonder what's going to happen now. Yeah, I think, you know, I think especially the advertising, because I thought that if I stay in there and stay in that direction, I'll get comfortable in that direction and I'll be in advertising my whole life because I'll start making money. You know, I'll start, you know, my family will depend on that money and, and then I can't then step away from it. And maybe it was more about fear than anything else. But I like to think that I had this vision of, you know, that something was there. I wanted to do something that I wasn't currently doing. And these, instead of helping me get there, would probably slow me down from getting to that place, even though I didn't know what that place was. Maybe I still don't. Maybe I still haven't gotten there. Well, it's still that open-ended, I haven't finished writing the book of my life yet. <laughs> and I, I hope I haven't. <laughs> well, right, right. But it's more along the lines of, yes, you get this job, you get locked in, and you think, okay, I have to do this forever. And that's just not very interesting to a lot of people. And you're, that's me right there. Uh, you and I have a similar situation where we've looked at some opportunities and said, you know, it'd be really smart to do that. And that's what most people would do. <laughs> and yeah. then you and I didn't. And, you know, people ask me, do you have regrets about that? You know, that you could be retired rich right now. I said, well, being retired rich right now would be great. Yeah. But there's all of that life in between there, right. That I would have had to have lived. And I, I'm pretty sure I'm doing okay with my life right now. So. That makes me think of my good friend, Robert McGank, that was the department head at VCU in their communication department for many years. And he taught there and he was an illustrator and he owned a design firm and was an avid swimmer. The guy was just moving all the time. But uh, people were saying when he was getting up in years, a lot of his friends were saying, when are you going to retire? And he'd always say, retire from what? I get up when I want. I make pictures, <laughs> people send me money, and then I make more pictures. And then I drink coffee and listen to rock and roll all day. What am I going to retire from? Why? <laughs> what's so bad about what I'm doing? Yeah, I, I, I understand that. The only retirement I'm going to have, I mean, is that, you know, I won't have any more meetings. I won't have any reports to write. I won't have any, you know, curriculum to develop. Other than that, I love the teaching. Being in the classroom is great. Everything else, else around academia is just getting old. Yeah, that's just the the work part of it. Yes. And I, I bet you're like me a lot in the fact that you and I both work really hard at teaching. We put in a massive amount of effort, yet it's effortless. It just feels well, easy. Well, that's what it feels. Yeah, once I step into the classroom, that's how it feels. It's just, uh, it's a very natural place for me to be. Yeah, that's what I meant. We put the effort in so that when we get there, boom, we're on. And it yep. just, things take over and just seem to make sense. And it's very, very natural. I like the way you put that. Mm -hmm. Well, Bill, as always, I have enjoyed our conversation here today, as I always enjoy talking with you. And my last question would be, if you could tell someone, whether they are a student or working professional or anywhere in between, 
if they are trying to get better at making pictures, what would you tell them they need to do? First of all, I would say the things that I think most anybody would say that have you know done any kind of work at all is that you know drawing and actually making work is going to make you better. So you know one of the things I'd love to tell my students is you know have a sketchbook with you. Drawing from life is where I think you'll develop your own voice. You can go out and you can do tutorials and you can actually even copy people's work to learn. I mean, mimicry is part of the way, way we learn as humans, but to develop your own voice, you have to be isolated alone with a pen or a pencil in your hand and, and a pad and looking at something and drawing it. That is the only way to continue to get better and develop your own voice is, you know, drawing, but also developing passion for things. So what I mean is, you know, find those things that bring you joy that you're passionate about and include that in your work so that your work becomes about your passion. And so and then, then your work becomes your passion. It's, a, it's an ongoing kind of thing that I think, you know, too many people just want to be, so I want to be an anime artist. I want to be, you know, this because they think the work is cool. If you truly have a passion for that, then that's great. But if you have a passion for animals or if you have a passion for writing or whatever it is, don't exclude that from your work. Make passion part of your life and then the work will become your passion. So that would be my advice. I think those are very good words. And I loved the fact that you said passion many times because that's left out of a lot of decisions, I think. And I think to include that in your paragraph there was very astute. Bill, thanks for being here today. I've enjoyed it. Hopefully we can do it again. It's been my pleasure. I'd love to do it again. <laughs>